You've joined Pathways to Resilience, the podcast where real people share real stories, helping us build our playbook toward resilience. And now here's the host of the show, Melissa Santos. Welcome back to Pathways to Resilience, a podcast of community solutions. I'm so happy to have you back listening again and to share with you today's episode. I'd like to welcome Melanie McKeska, a local friend and do-gooder that I met through our uh, mutual caring about the South County community here in Santa Clara County, um, and met her and her wife, Kim, and um, felt a connection, and then here we are. Uh, Melanie's here to share um, her story. Melanie is a retired police officer, a post-traumatic stress injury survivor, an advocate. And when we were talking, I coined her the helper, a helper of humanity, because she just has a, a very giving heart. Anyone in our community knows that. And I'm really um, grateful, Melanie, to be able to talk today about our topic, which is silencing shame. It's such an important part of the conversation around trauma and resilience. And uh, really looking forward to to our conversation. So welcome. Hi. Good to see you. Um, Melanie, let's just start with you telling us a little bit about yourself. Um, I My name is Melanie. I'm 52. I was born and raised in Canton, Ohio. I've been in California about over 30 years. Um, And I've been in Gilroy probably about 23 of those years. Mm-hmm. So uh, maybe 25 years. Okay, nice. Yeah, nice. So like I said, a fellow South Santa Clara County resident, we're both in Gilroy, yes. um, although this podcast is listened to everywhere, but uh, small town, lots of ways to get involved, and uh, you certainly have. So Melanie, when we spoke um, in preparation for this, I had heard you on another podcast talking about being a survivor of post-traumatic stress injury, um, but certainly learned so much in our, in our conversation and your vulnerability. Um, and you spoke about how two of the identities that you felt most defined by, which for you were being gay and being a police officer, each led to rejection and betrayal, which for you manifested into shame and isolation. And what I loved and can't wait to hear about was about how you got quiet and were able to silence the shame, which led you to self-acceptance and connection to your authentic self. So tell us about that journey. Well, first of all, I want to thank you for dropping the D in post-traumatic stress disorder, because I know we talked when we were preparing for this, it's really important that we help break the stigma with it being an injury because that's exactly what it is. Um, so thank you. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I think I felt shame for the first time as a child when I was in the third grade and I was held back. Um, And so when the next school year started, all of my friends had moved on to the next grade and I was still in the third grade. So I, I 
immediately thought I was dumb. Mm-hmm. I was um, not good enough. And I just didn't understand. Mm-hmm. My, uh, my brother and sister both went to the school for the gifted. So they had to be carted off to different schools. And so that really played, looking back on it now, it played a huge, I beat myself up pretty much my whole life. I used to say, um, I went to the dumb school, Mm. just went to public school, but, um, I, I really struggled in school. I was dyslexic before it was diagnosed and talked about. Um, so I struggled a lot. Um, so I, I, I turned to trying to make people laugh, that kind of stuff to get away from, um, feeling dumb or people yeah. looking at me like I was dumb. Yeah. That coping strategy. Of, yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and I had a, his name was Mr. Price without Mr. Price. He was a school, uh, he wasn't the teacher, but he would come in and, he, I, I think he pretty much saved me mm. <laughs> um, because he was so patient and kind and taught me in a way where I could actually learn. I'm not a, I'm not a learner of book reading. I'm more of a um, auditory, that kind of learner. Yep. Yep. So um he really, he, he, Mr. Price saved me. It's amazing that it can take one adult in a kid's life, right? Yes. I yeah. have never forgotten him. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. I love that. Yeah. Um, and then I, the next time I felt shame was trying to figure out, I knew I was different. So not only did I think I went to the dumb school, but I was different than all the other kids. Um, I, I remember trying to, I didn't know what the word was. Um, but when I figured out, I was like, oh, I'm gay. Mm. Uh, and I believe this was probably in probably the third or fourth grade yeah. um, that I knew that I was different, but I also knew that I couldn't tell anybody. Mm-hmm. And I, I, it was, I think it was out of fear. So, and then I felt as a child, there wasn't a place for me. Um, I was different. I, I had a very strong upbringing. Uh, we, you know, we were the family that went to my grandma's on Sundays and had supper together. Uh, we went camping every weekend. I, I, my picture of my childhood is, um, was perfect. Ah. And then you learn things as adults and you're right. like, I not see that. Right. But um being gay back in the early 70s, um, we didn't have support. We didn't have support from home, most generally. We didn't have support from schools, and we certainly didn't have support from any clubs or anything that there wasn't anybody that looked like me. Right. Um, and so I I became a conformer to, to not upset the apple cart so that people wouldn't look at me. Mm. Um, I learned to self-sacrifice 
and push away my authentic self in order to receive the um, validation or worth from the outside. It almost sounds like you you put on that perfect portrayal to fit into that picture perfect family picture, right? Yes, you felt I you felt different about it, but that you you weren't going to mess it up. You didn't want to mess it up. Mess it up. I was. Yep. I think I was my dad's favorite. Mm. You know, and so um, I was always the one that was outside wanting to do, build, fix, watch, because that kind of stuff interests me, right? Um, I was the biggest tomboy in the world, even Mm. though my mom made me sleep in pink sponge curlers, um, you know, on holiday nights and stuff like that. (laughs) Um, And we joke about it now. It's like, how did you, how did you not see that? And right. I don't think it's that they didn't see it. It They didn't understand or have the capacity to, maybe that's not a good word, but I, they just didn't have the understanding back then. Right. Right. You know? Or the empathy or the know what to do with it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Because right. I had my sister who was six foot, you know, she was this beanstalk of a woman, gorgeous modeling, you know, and then there's me. Yep. The tomboy who felt she was dumb. Uh, you know, all of these things. Yep. So <laughs> um and so shame shame pretty much ruled that part of my life. Um I felt defective. Mm. I felt um I felt like a cast out. Um But I always, and I, I turned like people pleasing was my thing from, you know, it's like, okay, if I, if I make everybody happy, they'll just overlook my gayness. Yep. They'll never guess. Yeah. I I'm struck. And I I know we'll talk more about isolation, but just how isolating your inner self must have felt the outer world sounds like you were engaging, but the, your true, your inner truths um, we're, we're hidden. Oh, very much hidden. Yeah. Um, we, we weren't a family that talked about a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, and I honestly think it's, it's no fault of my parents, but I think it was just the times, mm-hmm. you know, there wasn't, you know, send your kid off to counseling or get them. It, it just was a different time. Mm-hmm. And so of no fault of their own, it, we just weren't a family that expressed feelings or we knew I knew how to love mm-hmm. uh, oh, I know how to love fiercely and I knew how to be angry mm-hmm. so and I didn't there was no in between um for me so it was really scary at times to think about coming out I bet because there's a difference between knowing and being told mm. um so I didn't do that. I I went about my school years um, trying to fit in, trying to date men, trying to make what make it look perfect, mm-hmm. um, uh, and it just didn't work. <laughs> as hard you gave as it I, a good try. <laughs> I, I as hard as I wanted to yeah. try to. Yeah make it go away. Um, 
I just couldn't. Yeah, it was not authentic. No. So so the negative self-track yeah. talk, um, it was fed and it was fed hard. And I wanted to control all of these situations that were happening so that I could um thought that I had control of the outcome. Mm-hmm. And it <laughs> although well, I'll just come out. I, I came out when I was 18 and this, so I had prepared them pretty much my whole life that uh-huh. I'm the best. I'm the goodest. I'm the favorite. I'm all of these things. And there is absolutely no way that my being gay is going to change that. Even though we were kind of told, um, you know, being gay was not good. That's going to get you in a lot of trouble. And so I learned that I had a strike against me. Mm -hmm. um, And I just was trying not to get to three strikes. Um, So I came out and ultimately I didn't speak to my father for 15 years, Mm. which then fed my not a word. I'm not worthy. I'm not good enough. I am. I'm all of these things that I have been telling myself my whole life. Mm. Um, and so I carried that into adulthood. I became a perfectionist. I had lost all hope. Um, I moved to California when I came out because there was so much tension and anger and I was afraid Mm. um, for myself that I went to AAA and I said, what's the farthest I can get away? I'd never been away uh, without anybody. Um, And I bought a ticket and I flew out here and I stayed for four months. I found a job, an apartment, and I flew home and drove cross country. And I've been here ever since. Wow. I'm struck Mel, Mel, about just And again, as you keep talking about this, um, the contrast that you were trying to manage and just want to just pause and just honor that moment of going from favorite daughter out in the yard with dad all the time to opening, being vulnerable to tell him all of who you are and then not talking for almost two decades. And I, and I told myself, and I think maybe it was out of survival, (laughs) But I told myself through all of those years that I didn't care, right. that it didn't bother me, that it didn't matter. He was the one that was missing out and all of these things. And ultimately what I have learned is it did matter. I did care. Um, and it manifested in ways that were some ways that were destructive um, for me and, and the way I treated people in relationships, in my own self-worth. Thank goodness that I had the support from all of my other family members. Um, My sister used to introduce me as, hi, this is my sister, Melanie. Oh, and she's gay. Like it's (laughs) celebrity status or something. Um, And I never understood that. But what she told me was it was so she knew I wasn't embarrassed of or she mm. wasn't embarrassed of me. Yeah. Yeah. 
but it can put you in some pretty crazy. I'd imagine. Yeah. Like, okay. I don't always have to have that on my name tag, sis. Thank you. Thanks for your pride in me, but yeah. Right. Right. I get it. I mean, Uh I get it now. Right. But it was, I mean that, you know, we got killed. We still get killed. Right. Right. Um, so then I came out here and I, and I was like, okay, I'm going to make it no matter what. I'm not going to ask for anything. I am going to, if I don't care how many jobs I have to work, I am going to be this, the best that I can be so that then my dad will say, oh, like, I honestly wanted him just to say you are good enough. Right. Right. So I came out here and I worked for, um, LA County started with LA County. Then I went to work for Chico PD. And then I ended up here in, um, the, the Bay area here. And so I remember being graduation from the police Academy. Um, of course he wasn't there. Mm -hmm. We weren't talking. Um, my, but, but everybody else flew out. Um, my, my, um, mom pinned my badge on my grandma was beaming and, um, but there was still something missing. Yeah. You know, that, that acceptance of your dad. Yeah. Right. Um, and, um, the thank goodness that we were able to repair our relationship. Um, and we had a really good relationship prior to him passing away. So Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll never, I mean, we lost a lot of years but once we were able to come back together, I, I kind of just didn't look back. Yeah. I always wanted to hear I was sorry. Um, but I'm not sure my dad was capable of that. Yeah. Even yeah. though he was, you know, a good, he was a good man. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was a great provider and all of that stuff. Um, but he just wasn't capable of, of saying that he was wrong. Right. Or that it was okay. And Melanie, was he a police officer? Wasn't that part of your, yeah, yeah he was, yeah. He yeah. was a lot of things and that was, yes. One of them. Yeah. I remember you saying company, but yeah. yes, he was a police officer. And, and I remember he, um, in Ohio, you probably in Ohio, you can't have a funeral without having a police escort in a, on a motorcycle. So my dad would do that for extra money. And he would be the police officer that would get off the bike in the front of the funeral home or cemetery and salute as they were mm. going through and all of that. Um, and I re- just remember shining his shoes and his badge on the floor and thinking, oh my goodness, this is, this is what this is meant for me. Mm. Um, but it also had a lot of structure, which yeah, I was right. drawn to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it was right and wrong. Right. So uh-huh. I lived in a world of black and white. Yeah. I didn't know that there was <laughs> a lot of gray in the middle. Yeah. Um, so that's probably the other reason why I was drawn to that uh, profession. Yeah. You kind of had, you had been ignoring the gray for a long time for yourself, right? Living. Well, I didn't know what the gray was. Right. You, yeah. Didn't even. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I had no ability mm-hmm. to understand mm-hmm. what that was. Mm-hmm. Um, that makes sense given that what you said of leading towards that perfectionism, doing the right thing, staying on the right track. Yeah. 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 Um, 
and meanwhile, I'm dying inside. Right. He knows it, but me. Right. 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 So, um, so then I worked 20 years and all the emotions that for, for the 15 years that, um, I didn't speak with my dad, I, I never cried. I didn't, I was like this, I was the toughest outer shell that you would ever Mm. see. Right. I had no emotions. I had stuffed and buried and all of that. Um, and so, so this was the perfect job for me because I could go to all of these calls. It didn't bother me. I would go to some horrific scenes and be able to get in the car, go 10, eight and go to the next call. Mm-hmm. Um, until that didn't work anymore. Yeah. 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 Uh, and then when those emotions decided to rear their head, uh, they came up with a vengeance. Mm. Um, and then I couldn't stop crying, mm. uh, which then angered me even more. <laughs> right. Um, Wait, I don't do this. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. So I spent, I have spent I'm retired, like we said, but um, I spent the last five years of my life um, trying to bury the screams, push down the tears, erase um, the images, um, and try to convince myself that I wasn't weak or um worthless for having these emotions. Right. Um, so, and I judged myself. I was mm-hmm. my worst critic. I judged myself for having all of these emotions, which then once again brought up shame. Um, I didn't understand what was happening. And so that made me even more crazy. Right. Um, because I, I saved the world. Right. Um, and I didn't talk to anybody. I withdrew. I became very isolated mm. um, and in a room full of people. Mm-hmm. Um, Which may be the worst isolation of all, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and I, I, um, I talked to my department. I pretty much begged them um, to that something was happening, um, that I needed help. And they failed me. Mm. I don't know whether the outcome would have been different had they listened to my cries, but instead they wanted to blame me for the lack of motivation. Mm. for the pro for being not proactive i i physically could not do the job any longer even though i was showing up at work every day right and so i remember being in my patrol car t- crying not knowing what was happening and my sergeant would roll up and he would say, you're good, right? Yep. I'm fine. And I'm begging for help. Um, 
But I think if they would have got me help, I, I, the path would have been different to where I spent in those years of not wanting to be here any longer. Yeah. Um, which was, you know, fearful all in itself. Right. Of course. Of course. So, um, so I went out and, um, as hard as I tried to go back into the patrol car, uh, uh, my body shut down. Mm-hmm. Um, my legs weren't working. Um, my, um, I did not want to be here. I thought that if I was not here, that I can make the pain stop. And I just wanted the pain to stop. And so I remember sitting on the bathroom floor with my gun in my hand. My aliveness is gone. Um, And my dog next to me. And I said to myself um, that I can't do this one more day of not doing anything, right? And I got up from the bathroom floor and I, you know, I, I, I revisited that floor multiple times. Um, and I lost, I, I got hung up that my experience of what, what calls I had been on were, they were, they were different, even though we had even though there was multiple people, my experience was still my experience. Right. Mm -hmm. And because of the way I reacted to, and my trauma response to the shared experience, it, it doesn't mean that what I was feeling was wrong. No, I want to pause there for one second. Well, one, your vulnerability is powerful. And, um, and I know there's, there's, there are people out there who just really need to hear this, but I also, I just want people to understand that when we see some, a traumatic event in front of us, or even think about those, those memories or those visions that our brains react to them as if they're happening to us right now. That's how our brains work. That's how our brains work. And people don't know this word certainly that is familiar in my field around vicarious trauma or secondary trauma or whatever it's real it's it's how our brains react and it's so important that you're talking about this melanie for all of our first responders and just people who part of the job is to see those horrific and be be firsthand witnesses to things that many people only see on TV and that's, or, you know, or, or can't even imagine seeing. And just to validate that it's not something wrong with anyone. It's how our brains react. And you described so well that, and yes, two people can go through the same experience. And we, what Janet Childs calls, we all have our emotional backpacks. So depending on what's in my emotional backpack, you know, that, Siren may have a very different response for me than it does for you. Right. We just have different backpacks. 
Right. And we often, you know, as much as your sister would introduce you and say, here's my gay sister, Melanie, most of us aren't showing up saying, Hey, you want to know it's in my backpack? You know, we're hiding those backpacks because we didn't talk about our backpacks. We don't even know other people have them on. We often don't even know we have them on because no one's allowed us. Right. So I just, you're just so you're just describing that. I think it's just so important for people to understand that when we say trauma, what's trauma? I mean, it's a very personal experience and reaction to something where we feel unsafe um, or based on lots of different things. So I I just wanted to pause there because um, I think it's just really important. And that make, I'm, thank you. It's when you're in the field when you're, when you're a police officer and you do it for a long period of time, there's a lot of rocks in that backpack. So, um, (laughs) and it it can be the biggest event that causes it to overflow. Or in my case, it could be one, a, a smaller event that makes it even harder when it's, I think it's when it's the smaller event, then I couldn't wrap my head around. But I've seen all of these things. These people visit me in my dreams, these visions, I can't sleep, all of these things. And I'm able to, what I thought was manage. Right. um, And I am stuck in my house in the same pair of sweatpants for three years hmm. I felt like a broken record it it was like I would I would tell myself okay I'm not going to react I am going to be just fine and then I'd hit the skip in the in the record and the mm. needle would be stuck right yep and there's yep. nobody there to pick that needle off of that record and start it from the beginning or push it past or the, push it past it yeah yeah um and so I mean, it's simple things like being able to go into a restaurant and not have to panic about where you're going to sit. I don't think the general public, I I would love to know what it felt like just to be able to walk into any restaurant, sit down, be like, yep, I'm here and and not (laughs) care. Um, But that would send me into a full on tailspin, panic attack, rage, you know, um, so if, if Kim was able to get me out of the house, um, to go to a restaurant or to meet the couple of friends that we still had left because I had shut everyone down and out. If we didn't get there first and I walked in and people were sitting in my spot, I couldn't, uh, manage. Mm. So then there's my wife, the buffer, who is, you know, hey, do you think, you know, we can switch seats? Can we, can we do this to protect me? Right. Right. Um, and meanwhile, these people, our friends, don't know what's happening. It, yeah. Yeah. Uh, because I swore her to secrecy. Right. Again, that isolation. No, this is our, this is, you can be in on this secret only because you live with me and you're good. Yeah. But yeah. My own yeah. family, I was off work for three years before I retired and my own family didn't even know. Wow. I went about my routine with them. Like nothing was different Mm. because I was so 
afraid that they would think that I was a failure, that I I didn't know who I was without the uniform. Mm-hmm. So I couldn't envision what they thought I was without the uniform. Yeah. I had hold, made up a whole bunch of stories in my own head. So I was telling nobody. Yeah. Well, it's, it feels, so it sounds like third grade Melanie, right? Third grade <laughs> Melanie going. Yeah. And I had no Mr. Price to help me out. Right. No Mr. Right. Price. Right. Right. Um, yeah. But, but I had my wife yeah. who, who was my protector. Um, and she would manage the, the restaurant scene or whatever. Um, but I'm here to tell you, if you just tell your friends, yeah. your close friends, what's actually happening, it's easier for them to understand. Yeah. Now we can go and there, I mean, my seats, right. Available. The good ones leave your seat available. They don't. Yeah. Yeah. Right? They love you. They want you to be there. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, Kim is, she's a saint, um, in many ways in my life. Um, so, but I want to touch on, I'm, I'm going through all of these things. I'm isolated. I'm not understanding what is happening. And then I get a diagnosis of complex post-traumatic stress. And you would think that the I, the weight of the world lifted. Mm. Um, and I felt like I could breathe Wow! for the first time in three and a half years. It gave me a little bit of hope that I wasn't wrong, that I, something wasn't wrong with me, meaning, I mean, something was wrong with me, but, but there was help. Right. And it wasn't a character defect. It, right. it wasn't, it wasn't the kid Something going to I the did. regular school in a, spe- right, right, right. Yes. Yeah. The dumb school, right? The dumb school yeah. with the, yeah. Mm-hmm. I say that now to my family kind of as a joke and they, they don't find it. Um, they never found it to be funny. Like I found it to be funny, but um, <laughs> I, I joke with them now about it because I can laugh about it Yeah, because uh, it doesn't hold, it's not as, it's not painful. It doesn't cut me like a knife. Right. Um, when I said it as a kid, I, it was almost like I was self hurting myself mm-hmm. Yeah, just so I could believe what I thought other people saw. Right. Right. I'll be harder to myself. So that right. the pay, that that if other people are this hard on me, it won't hurt so much because I'm doing it to myself. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. So the doctors told me I needed to retire, and it was not the way I thought my career would end. Um, there was no last radio call. There was no parties. There was no goodbyes. It was pretty much get your stuff. It was brutal. That played mind games with me too right? Um, I had been in hell, not knowing, and now I know. So I decided, and, and, and throughout this whole time, I'm still visiting the bathroom floor. And for whatever reason, um, I think it's a combination of my wife, my family in Ohio, 
our children and grandchildren and my dog mm. um, is why I, I say not have the courage, but something, there was still something little spark inside of me that I tried to spark every day. Um, because I didn't want to hurt people in my life that meant the world to me. Like I saw people hurt in the calls, the times that I would go when somebody would take their own life or the, the, the pain of telling a mother that their child was killed in an accident or that, that sound. Um, and sitting here with you today, talking about it, I can hear it. Mm, I bet you can. I didn't want to do that. Yeah. Something I didn't know that I didn't want to do that, but but something kept me alive, and um, thank goodness. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I said to myself, sitting there on that bathroom floor with my gun in my hand, I said, "Okay, you can either stay in this miserable place that you've trapped yourself in, or you can get up." put that gun away and get some help. And so I chose that Avenue because I said to myself, you can always come right back here. <laughs> I went to two inpatient treatments and the fact that I'm actually even able to say that out loud or talk to you about it um, is pretty big. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I went and the, um, the shame would creep in. Like, what is wrong with you? You're a failure. You're a coward. Why do you have to be here? All of these things. And, um, I, and in the first one that I went to, it dealt with trauma from all my years in law enforcement. And, um, I sat that at that table, at that round table, I made a true commitment to myself. I wanted to find out who the true authentic Melanie was. Behind the badge with the retired badge. And I took everything in, in that treatment retreat. Um, and it was for first responders. So um, powerful. Yes. It's yes. It, it was the biggest, you would think that the diagnosis of post-traumatic stress would be, um, a death sentence, but it was, it was probably turned out to be one of the biggest blessings in my life. Again, saying that um, out loud and believing it is recovery. Oh, it right. is. Um, so I, I, I went there, um, and I participated and then I went back. I continue to go back as a peer 
because I was like, I have to get this. There's no stone going to be left unturned, right? And I came home from there and I felt like a new person. And I got home and my wife looked at me and said, I am so happy you're feeling good, but I want you to remember that we're still left with all the carnage that you created. And that was so powerful for me that I had um, hurt a lot of people that were close to me, some on purpose, some unintentional, some I didn't know any better, some I just didn't care, I guess. Right. Yeah. And so I, I worked um, to try to make amends. And so I volunteered at that retreat all the way up until COVID. And then this past year, I went to my second um, inpatient Save a Warrior. And that retreat taught me, WCPR taught me all about my work trauma. And Save a Warrior brought it all full circle for me that uh, they taught me about my childhood trauma, something that I would never, ever, ever talk about because I didn't want anybody judging my family. Um, and so today I'm on a, um, a daily method of self-care, gratitude, meditation, um, I've forgiven myself for doing what I had to do to survive. Um, I have relieved my parents of my my expectation that I set for them to be perfect. Mm -hmm. Um, And I have forgiven them. I know they did the best they could with what they had. Um, And they showed me a lot of love, you Mm -hmm. you know, even with, even, through all the heartache, yep. Um, there was love, always love, and um, I'm able to talk honestly to my wife, my friends, my family about what's truly happening with me. My brain and my body have had some setbacks, um, and it's a it's a daily battle to stay in in recovery, but. Um, I do it. I get triggered. I am able to recognize the trigger um, and then get myself back to my new normal um, a little bit faster. That's awesome. And if I've hurt somebody's feelings, I can actually take a step back, explain to them maybe what triggered me and apologize which I was never good at. So, and I think that was a learned behavior. (laughs) Right. Right. (laughs) Um, Yeah. That was a light bulb moment right there. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, That may have come up earlier in this conversation with dad. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So I, yeah, so I'm able to do that now. And um, uh, there's one little puzzle piece that is missing Um, and that's, I'm on the list to get a service dog. Um, and so I'm hoping that 
that a match will come soon. And then that will be the last piece of this puzzle that will help me really be full. It's I'm like, so I'm just touched and honored that you're, that you're sharing this. There's also just this lightness about you as you're talking about such a heavy backpack, right? Um, a couple things that came to me. One, what a powerful statement to say that to be able to say out loud today and believe that the diagnosis and experience of having post-traumatic stress injury was the best thing that's happened to you and that that's recovery. One of the best things. That's such a huge statement. That's such a huge statement. And the other is uh, on our last episode, Dr. Cece Weaver talked about self-care being the importance of self-care and that when we take care of ourselves, we're really helping that our internal light shine as bright as it can to the world because we deserve it and the world deserves it from us kind of thing or the world is better for it. And I, I, that just came to me when you talked about being on the bathroom floor and there was a spark, there was enough of a spark. Your light wasn't completely out. And through all of this, through opening yourself out, like just spilling the backpack out, um, getting vulnerable, telling your truth, being willing to sit and say that I re- I want to get to know this this woman who, you know, since third grade's been hiding, right. Um, to please and to, and to perfect and to perform. And it just struck me that that spark and, and today really shining your light on the world, uh, because you nurtured that light and that, that, that spark. You know, it's like an ignition switch, right? It's like click, 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 click. And then finally it's, uh-huh. There, but there's that, there's that little spark that one day it's going to just light the flame. And you noticed it within yourself though, you know? Yeah. Thank goodness. Right. Thank goodness. <laughs> Thank goodness. You know, we all have stories, right? We all, we all have stories. Um, you know, going to the grocery store, do you, hi, how, you know, how are you? Oh, I'm good. People could you imagine being like, well, you know, really telling them your story, your backpack stories there, they would walk away thinking you were, you know, you've lost something, but what I've learned and you, I think you touched on it is when I talk to you or anybody else, I realize how far I have come in my recovery and how strong I am. And I used to worry about what people thought. I used to worry what they would say. And I've learned that what they think about me is none of my business. Um, Because I'm doing what I need to do today to be the best version of myself. Mm. And I'm okay with that. And aren't we all lucky for it? Those that know you. And so, you know, it sounds like as we get back to this silencing the shame, because you, I mean, you took the, you took that shame and helped us to see, you know, it's that, it is that inner critic. It is that all the stories you make up of what the people you care about or don't care about 
are going to think or say about you, right? We, we, we draw it all up. And the silencing of that was to just get it all out. And then you talked about, and you talked a little bit in our last conversation too, about, you know, going to these retreats, pausing, listening to yourself, um, getting quiet. Tell us about the getting quiet. Um, was that the meditation? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just centering myself Uh and understanding that each morning when I wake up one, it's a blessing. And two, I get to re-envision who I am every single morning. And so I, I do, I take moments for myself, um, which I am learning how to do. Uh, I'm not the best at it yet because I'm still, um, it's hard for me to say no Mm -hmm. to people who ask for things or need things. Um, I'm a rescuer. (laughs) So, um, and I'm learning that that's not necessarily a bad thing as long as you have boundaries. Right. And so I'm learning to the boundary part is where I struggle um, because I don't say no. Mm -hmm. Um, So, but I'm learning that I can say no and that's okay. Yeah. I got to put my oxygen mask on today before I can put yours on. Right. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And I'm able today, I'm able to, to feel connection, like real connections. I'm able to feel happiness. I'm able to take a moment, understand that my past doesn't define me and that I have the tools when the mud gets too high to navigate my way out of it. Mm. Those tools are so important. Oh man. Um, I, I, and I'm not perfect. I still have moments of blow up and being scared and taking a step back. But as long as, as long as I can say, I'm sorry, that's not my intent. That wasn't what I meant or explain how I was feeling. Mm -hmm. Then it's a win. So, um, and most importantly, willing to share, um, without having without being scared with realizing that if there's one person that is listening to this, that's suffering in silence, like I did to know that there's hope, hold on pain ends. That's hope. And you don't have to suffer in silence. And believe me, you are not as unique as you think you are because everybody has, everybody's going through something. So be brave, be strong, reach out, ground yourself, touch somebody and ask for help. Yeah. Because that is the bravest thing that you will ever be able to do that I was able to ever do for myself was to admit that I needed help. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, a friend of mine said to me, uh, somebody important to me up at the retreat said to me, 
fear, face everything and run or face everything and rise. Wow. That's powerful. And today I'm rising. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's why I'm here with you. I love it. And I appreciate it. So what Melanie, how would you, how would you define resilience? Resilience. Except that's accepting my new reality, even when it's drastically different from what I had before. Mm. Uh, I fought it. I can scream about it. I can, I've, I've lost a lot of things, but I am the one who has the power and the responsibility to pick myself up. I took that challenge by the horns. Mm-hmm. Uh, and look where we are. Yeah. I'm, I'm here talking to it and I feel resilient and I feel like I'm winning the battle with inside me. Woo-hoo. Yeah. I love that acceptance and power, really knowing that you have the power, not giving that to anyone outside of ourselves. And I am worthy enough. And worthy. Mm-hmm. Keep asking for help till the right person comes along. Right. Yes. Yeah. 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 So, um, yeah, that's me. Thank you. Well, thanks so much for, for joining me and for, um, not only, you know, rocking resiliency and recovery in your own life, but being willing to share your story with me and our listeners. I really appreciate it. And I want to thank all of, like, I want to thank my wife for Mm -hmm. never giving up on me. She never gave up on me. Um, and, and so did everybody else, like at the retreats and stuff, they really, um, saw something. Yeah. They made me believe that again. Yeah. So, and I'm, and, and I've been with my wife for 19 years. So, um, so being gay, isn't all that bad. (laughs) (laughs) Yay. Well, and though this idea that there's all these pieces of yourself, being gay, being a retired police officer, and then just knowing that you be so much more, that yes. Melanie bees so much more. Yeah. And so much more. Yeah. I call my grandmother every single day. She's going to be 102 this year. I call her every single morning and I call my mom every single night because I, I thrive on those kind of connections. And, um, and that's what makes me whole. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you again for being here and I will see you soon. Yes, you will. Okay. I'm so inspired and touched by all that Melanie just shared with us today. And I can only imagine that you are too. I am sitting here reflecting as I do at the end of episodes and thinking about the message and the action to take from this episode. And a few are coming to me. You know, one, are we pausing, getting quiet, and really listening to our authentic selves? Or are we spending a lot of our time listening to our inner critic, the stories that we 
might make up about how others may be judging us. Building a facade of perfectionism. All these things that keep us from our authentic selves and dim our light. I love that theme that came from our last episode into this one that dim our light. And so in all the roles in our our lives as individuals, as parents, as employees, as leaders, that gets dimmed too, if we're not showing up as our authentic selves. So just that idea of in our own minds, who are we listening to? And then how do we silence the critic that causes the shame, the embarrassment, the judgment? And then I was also just, I'm just really struck and want to emphasize the importance of understanding how trauma and the brain work. And in this particular episode, we talk about first responders and those come in many roles, right? Police, firefighters, our emergency room and hospital personnel, particularly over the last couple of years, Red Cross volunteers or people, mental health clinicians who are on the front lines with people who are going through crisis. And remembering that stress, especially toxic stress, traumatic stress situations, cause our brain to go into fight or flight panic mode. And when we're in that mode for too long, our backpacks get way too heavy and super full. And so keeping an eye on not only ourselves, but those we love and those around us to check in. This is exactly what we talk about at Community Solutions when we talk about being trauma-informed. It's about understanding that everyone's walking a path, that everyone is experiencing stress and trauma in their lives in different ways. And we don't even need to know the specific story but we just can assume it. And so treat each other with more acceptance and openness and empathy. And when someone reaches out for help and says, I'm not okay, that we listen and we honor. And if it's not something we can help with, we help them find that help. So important. I do want to end with providing the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. If you or someone you know is struggling, you can reach them at 1-800-273-8255. You can also visit us at www.communitysolutions.org. Thanks for listening to Pathways to Resilience an initiative of Community Solutions.